the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 3 this Wednesday, May 12th. It is a delight to bring back one of my oldest and dearest friends, one of our most uh, appreciated and frequent guests, Dr. Tevi Troy. He is a, he is a, um, a cultural and presidential historian. His most recent book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, uh, author of many books, uh, including Shall We Wake the President? He knows a lot about uh, crisis management. Um, Tevi, welcome back. Hey, Seth. Thanks for having me. It is always a pleasure being on your show with your super smart listeners. <laughs> thanks, buddy. Immigration, gas, Mideast, unemployment, inflation, all of this was under control. I feel like I'm back in the 70s. I know. That's what I was going to say. Didn't we already try all this with Abe Beam and Jimmy Carter? Yeah, it's just a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, I thought we were past this. I was driving today, and I saw this huge line of cars. I, I didn't know what it was. Right. I was so unused to it. But there's a great story in the Carter White House that uh, Stu Eisenstadt, who happens to be a friend of mine, but is Carter's domestic policy advisor, was uh, he was working on the gas prices. And Carter, in a cost-cutting effort, got rid of the cars that took senior White House aides to and from the office. So he said maybe if they hadn't cut the car service uh, in this stupid cost-cutting measure, I would have had more time to actually work on the problem instead of waiting online for gas all the time. Sounds a little bit like I hate to – you'll forgive me for this. I hate to um, cast aspersions on your friend. It sounds a little like John Kerry saying, you know, if I'm going to be doing all these great deals on behalf of the environment, I have to fly private. Right. I know. It's pretty and, and the funny thing is that uh, Stu mentioned it not only in his memoir, but also in his oral history. So it was really something that was yeah. worse in the great deal. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Taking away someone's car in the administration. Right. That they'll remember for the rest of their life, won't they? Uh, yeah, no, it's the uh, kind of fun detail I have in White House. Yeah, no, that that is fun, uh, Tevi. But it is serious. How you can, you can, you can un. People forget how how much easier it is to destroy than build. Um, and that that is a pretty serious group of accomplishments here in four months, given the four years it took to kind of get these things in the right direction. Uh, 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 to repeat, immigration, energy independence, Middle East peace, unemployment, and inflation all under control. In four months, now all out of control. Yeah, and, and, and let's not just say four, four years. I mean, for 20 years, for 30 years, we haven't had these things. Yeah, that's Democrats fair enough. That's fair. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, we had moved past these things. And let's credit Bill Clinton a little bit. He said the era of big government is over because he knew that big government causes more problems than it solves. And uh, now it looks like the era of big government is back, and we've learned none of the lessons from the problems in the 60s and the 70s and uh, the Great Society. You know, the, the old line about the old war on poverty, the war on poverty is over and poverty won, right? So, um, 
Our friend, uh, our friend yeah. Charles Kessler said, Bill Clinton did say the era of big government is over. He didn't, however, say the era of bigger government is over. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, it's like declaring bankruptcy. You have to do more than just declare it. Yell, yeah, you know, <laughs> like in the office, you can't just declare big government is over. You have to do, try and do something about it. Um, well, they're expanding it, and I want to get into that a little bit. And it gets to the main topic I called you about or wanted to talk to you about, Tevi, which is really not the Democrats but the Republicans and not the uh, uh, liberal or left movement but the conservative movement. Um, it's interesting, by the way. We, we, we talk about the conservative movement of which you're a historian easily. That's a phrase that just trips off the tongue. And for the first time in my 50-whatever years of life, I just uh, realized we don't ever say comparably the liberal movement or the leftist movement, do we? It's the conservative yeah, and, movement and, and, and the rest because, of the world, in a sense. Because it's not a movement in the same way. Okay. You know, there's the old story about the conservatives who uh, wear the Adam Smith ties or the James Madison ties. And you ask a liberal who they admire, who who are, you know who are the great ancestors. They they mention politicians. They don't mention political thinkers. Oh, do that again. That's important. Let's do that. Do that again. That's good. very interesting. For another, conservatives say, "Who who do you admire?" And you'll say, "Well, um, William F. Buckley or um, uh, or Strauss, you know, Strauss or um, uh, or Milton Friedman." Yeah, and conservatives right. tend to say thinkers, yeah. whereas liberals tend to say politicians. I admire Obama. I like Biden. Already. Oh, interesting. So, uh, interesting. And, and, and conservatives have uh, have these ties. Uh, the famous Adam Smith ties has been a symbol of belief in capitalism. What James Madison ties to signal a, a belief in the uh, in the Constitution. Whereas uh, liberals, you know, who, you're never going to have a liberal say, "Oh yeah, I just I, I love the writings of John Dewey." That's so really interesting. They, they do have bumper stickers, I suppose, but not the same thing. And we have bumper stickers, but that's really th- that opens up. It almost sounds like you're writing a column on this, but it opens up a big question, which is: Is it because we, we're a movement in the sense that we have ideological, uh, intellectual leaders, and they don't? They just have power brokers. I mean, who are you're right? There's John Dewey and Walter Lippmann, and I mean, we can go through a list of supposed liberal intellectuals. Walter Lippmann. I mean, read his writing. It's not like you said. You think of him as a woke progressive, <laughs> right? Right. No, but that's the. Uh, but he was this a is it. In his day. But no, right. But this is the point. No one talks about. You know, I, I can guarantee there is not whatever the equivalent to conservative talk radio is, where we talk about you know Jaffa and Strauss and important William Buckley, important conservative intellectual matters here. I don't think on whatever liberal radio is out there on CNN and MSNBC, they're having shows uh, dedicated to Lewis Hartz. No, it, it, it's indeed very rare. You just don't hear. I mean, you hear uh, a name that comes up a lot is um, Hofstadter, Richard Hofstadter, but only because he wrote that um, that essay about paranoia in American life, and so they, they like they like to point that. But I don't know if they've actually read the essay, but uh, but it comes up a lot. Maybe more because we bring it up. This is the I, I, I've done, I've I've done three monologues on Richard Hofstadter's uh, thesis about the paranoid style in American politics because when he wrote that piece. For the Atlantic or Harper's? Maybe Harper's. When he wrote that piece originally, Tevi, before turning it into a book, you know the history here. This was a professor, I think, Columbia, New York or Columbia. Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. And and his whole thesis was that the Goldwater movement, I mean, it was specific. The Goldwater movement 
was a uh, ragtag coalition of uh, Americans who uh, were paranoid of everything from uh, the Soviet threat to uh, the dominance of uh, communists taking over the big government. Today, the you, you just go down what the paranoid um, the, the, the the paranoid in this country think. Listen to the left; they're not hiding it; they're not concealing it. I think the paranoid style in American politics is firmly on the left. That's where I think most of the conspiracy theories lay. Yes, but liberals like to point to conservatives and say that it's the right wingers who are paranoid about um, elections and QAnon and space lasers and all that stuff. So, I mean, I think both sides throw out the uh, the paranoia accusation. But I think the liberals like to cite that essay because it was referring to conservatives, meaning specifically the Goldwater movement. Is Someday I want to do a show. And it's not right now. And you may get mad at me for you may get mad you may get mad at me for saying this, but it just yeah you might it it might it just dawned on me that you know for some reason we have these mass ideological movements under various banners of socialism, whether the Soviet Union or China or uh, Cambodia, any number of places, Cuba, that have used it, Venezuela, with a huge body count, a body count that goes throughout history into the hundreds of millions. Um, And yet, you know, we have people in this country who can proudly stand up and say they are socialists, they're Marxists, and they might get streets named after them. Uh, They might get elected to uh, represent uh, Congress, um, represent Americans in Congress from states like uh, Michigan or Minnesota or New York. But why are those ideas, given the history, given the pedigree, given what they stand for in their own right, given some kind of credibility as if QAnon is the crazy in America? I I think QAnon is crazy. But why is why is someone who adheres to the views of Karl Marx that are propagated by the likes of socialists and self-declared Marxists in this country any less subject – should they be any less subject to ridicule? I don't think they should be. Look, there's two things going on. First of all, there's always been uh, – Can I ask you to hold thought. that thought? Can I ask you to do that? You on the other side of this break? Yeah. Okay. Softness regarding communism on the left. Happy to discuss that. All right. Softness <laughs> regarding communism on the left with Dr. Tevi D. Troy when we return. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy, presidential historian, cultural historian, uh, is our guest, and we're talking about a few different things. His most recent book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi, I was talking to you about the softness in the culture on communism. There's a small part in Christopher Hitchens' book, Hitch 22, where he raises the question why there's this odd toxicity to Nazism that doesn't attach in the same way or with the same noxiousness as communism or Marxism, though the death toll, as I said, is so much greater in the second and not the first. He said, we even will call each other comrades with a wink and a nod. You would never hear those German equivalents. 
it's something true about that, and it's odd, and I think it does have to do with the culture being run by the left and cultural softness on communism. But you're the expert. Take it away. Yeah, look, there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, to the left, Nazism is seen correctly as a movement that stems from evil. Right? It is an evil movement, and it was all about trying to um, assert certain nationalist rights and kill Jews, and it's just not, not a good movement. But to the left, communism comes from a good place. Maybe the results were bad, but it comes from a good place. Make everybody equal. It's all nice. So, so they, they just look at it from a different perspective, whereas you and I would say, well, communism is not coming from a good place. It actually comes from a bad place and has led to bad results. Uh, the second thing is you see constantly in the co- culture a softness towards communism. So, for example, uh, John F. Kennedy was murdered by someone who had tried to defect to Cuba, a communist country. Nobody said, oh, it's not like nobody said, but the... the, um, Stop, stop right there. This is a fascinating point, and it's important, and I have to underscore it with you, because you know this research as well as I do, I think, maybe better, but... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Jim Pearson's work on this, but when, when, you ta- when you think of the Kennedy assassination, the first days, liberal media tried to make it all about radical right-wing hate in Dallas. Right. There was all this noise right. and protest. Right. There, were, there were conservative right. protests against Kennedy in, in Dallas. It's right. absolutely true. But, but <laughs> Oswald, Oswald, yeah, but Oswald was actually a communist. Yes. Right. Right. Okay, go on. Sorry to interrupt. And I just so there's, there's yeah. been this effort to conflate the two to say because there are these conservative protests against Kennedy, that's what killed him. When it was a communist, possibly communist agent, but you know, certainly somebody who tried to defect Cuba, uh, it, it's just absurd. And so you constantly have this when a, a Marxist does something, when a liberal regime does, when, when a communist regime does something, liberals tend to soft pedal. So that's one thing that's going on, and that's. You know, that's kind of uh, on us as conservatives. Okay, you know, that, that's what they do. We have to be prayerful. But the second thing is, I think that we as conservatives have allowed the culture to forget the evils of Marxism and all of the pain of Marxism and the death of Marxism. You know, we, we won the Cold War in 1990. Conservatives uh, rightly celebrated what, what happened right around then, uh, at the end of the Reagan administration, beginning of the Bush administration. And for 30 years, we haven't really talked about how terrible communism is. And as a result, we have new generations of Americans who don't know how terrible communism is, and they say, oh, communism isn't that nice movement that tries to give everybody an equal share. And we are failing in the job of educating people about how terrible Marxism is. Now, you know, we've got some examples again, Venezuela, for example, and all of our shortages there. But, uh, but you don't have the Soviet Union as the big bad guy around anymore, and uh, the Chinese obviously are, are still Marxist, but they, uh, uh, but they, but it's sort of a Marxist uh, political ideology, whereas they have a sort of a form of capitalism in their in their economy, and they also, you know, as we know, we don't really get the full story of what's going on there. I mean, they're very repressive in, in their relation with with media and with social media companies. So, the American people, certainly the younger generations, just don't have a good sense of how terrible Marxism is. You know, it's interesting. You said we, uh, you were talking about, you know, what the seemingly distant memories now of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the defeat of communism are in context to today, because you know we rightfully, as I think, if I can quote you, you said we rightly celebrated the downfall of communism. 
in uh, 1989. And, I, you, you know, yes and no to that, if I might push back a little, Tevi. Yes and no. I was, um, I was rereading uh, P.G. O'Rourke, who was in Berlin at the time, and uh, how he said when he came back to the United States, he was looking through magazines and newspapers, and all he saw were editorial writers pulling long faith faces about whither a united Germany and whence America's adjustments to the new realities in Europe. And he, in the way O'Rourke can only do, writes, is that the kind of noise people were making in Times Square on VE Day? You take the point. No, you said, it's a good point. But yeah. when, when I say we rightly celebrated, I'm saying conservatives. Okay. Celebrated. I, I do think that the, the culture writ large did not do enough celebrations yeah. of the victory in the Cold War. Yeah. But you, you definitely have had conservatives crowing about it, uh, appropriately, understandably, correctly. But I, I don't think that we have a culture... Uh, properly, and look, at, I just don't think part of it is set up by a confu- absorbing good news. Well, I got to tell you, I think part of it is a setting up of confusion too, with willingness to engage as we have so apologetically or defensively with China. I think that creates confusion. I do. Uh, yeah, you know, there, there's a great new book by um, by Josh Rogan. I think it's called Chaos Under Heaven. Okay, about the U.S.-China relationship, which I heard your listeners. To read, it is a fascinating book. It's got some great stuff on sort um, of inside baseball and what's going, what was going on in the previous administration in China, and some oh, of the great. hilarious uh, internal fights that, that were taking place. And I actually laughed out loud multiple times when I was reading the book. But it, but there's a scary premise underneath, which is that we miscalculated when it came to China, and and he. Uh, you know, he's a columnist for the Washington Post. I wouldn't call him a conservative. But he says, we had this belief that if we engage with China economically, they will reform politically. Yeah. And we, on both sides of the aisle, are now coming around to this recognition that we were wrong. It was yep. a failed assumption. Yep. And that's what we have to deal with now. And uh, you know, I think there is, I think there already is a new Cold War with China. And I think it's, it's going to get worse in the years ahead. And uh, we just need to prepare for it. You know who said you can't have... Economic freedom without political freedom? Uh, Yeah, that's right. In the first chapter of Capitalism and Freedom in 1961 or two. That's exactly right. And we just didn't listen to him. We just didn't listen to him. That's exactly right. But damn, that was impressive that you did that. That, I got to, as impressive as I think you are, that was pretty cool. It's not often you can throw out an abstruse quote and get a correct abstruse answer like that. That's pretty good. I wanted to say one other thing. Like the work against Trump, but um, one other thing about Bill Friedman, he also said he's for unlimited immigration as long as there's no welfare state. Right, and, as long as there's no welfare state. Right. So, what welfare free movement of, uh, I mean, immigration free movement of capital is a great thing. But uh, once you start to have a welfare state, there are different incentives and people come to places for different reasons. I have a really great way to seg what I called you about with our discussion that we've had thus far, and I'll do it when we come back. He's Tevi Troy. Get his books at Amazon.com. I'm Seth Leibson, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. My friends at Trades Unlimited, there for all your roofing needs, want me to tell you about foam roofs in the valley and how great they are for helping insulate 
your home from the extreme heat in Arizona, but also from exterior noises and, most importantly, your house from water leaks. I know the team at Trades Unlimited. I know them well. I have been down to their warehouse and offices. These are great people with a great work ethic. Quality of craftsmanship is what they stand by, which is why, among other reasons, they have an A-plus rating at the BBB, the Better Business Bureau. Most of their business is by referral or previous customers, which is why we are delighted to help expand that megaphone for them because quality and service is what you will get to know with Trades Unlimited, the kind of small company that I just love. Hot summer sun, perfect for foam recoats, and so is Trades Unlimited. Give them a call at 480-483-1775 or find them online at tradesunlimited.com for all your roofing needs. Talking with uh, Dr. Tevi Troy, cultural and presidential historian. Uh, Tevi, let me uh, try this segue uh, from our previous conversation to this, which was, yeah, you're right. Uh, Conservatives uh, agree on one thing or have or used to. It was uh, opposition to communism. Uh, first and uh, foremost, the main thing they agreed on, and then we went in different directions uh, from there, especially on domestic policy. Um, but uh, when you think about the antagonism to communism as so historically a part of the conservative movement, you you have to look at these organizations that are now showing up. New York Times is talking about one headline, more than 100 Republicans, including former officials, threatened to split from the GOP. You just wonder how much of the coherence and cohesion within the conservative movement has been disturbed since then, has broken up since then, such that there is an effort to change the party or put us under the party. This group of over 100 Republicans to me is not an oppressive group, nor is it an impressive number, nor do I think it's an impressive effort, because I have literally no idea what the hell they stand for. <laughs> in, in this case, I appreciate the question. I think you said it better than I. Really? Uh, in terms of their lack of impressiveness. Look, and this guy, Miles Taylor, I don't think is a serious person. And I mean, here's a guy who claimed that he was some kind of big shot official in the previous administration, and he wrote this book. He got a very nice advance for the, for the book. The book is unimpressive also, with your long list of uh, unimpressive things. And I look at the list of people who are along for the ride, and it just doesn't strike me as people who are, shall we say, stalwarts in the conservative movement, people who I look to for uh, for guidance on this. And um, my or people who have a future, really, in politics at all. Tom Ridge? Mickey Edwards? Give me a break. These volcanoes stopped blowing decades ago. Uh, Christy Whitman? I, I didn't even know she was still alive. And it's not clear to me that those people were on board or, or that they were speculated as possibly on board. So it wasn't even clear to me who the people were, other than Miles Taylor trying to run the show. So look... He had his act. His act was writing this book anonymously and misleading the world about who he was. And the New York Times enabled his misleading activity because they knew that he would not be a senior official under their rules of who you quote. Uh, but they allowed this fiction to be out there that he's some kind of senior official who was filling secrets, and he just wasn't. And you could see the op-ed uh, was a thousand words, and you're able to suggest maybe you're a senior person. But in the book, 
And once you get to seventy to 100,000 words, uh, it, it just was clear that he had very little access and he really wasn't that relevant a player. So I'm unimpressed with him. I'm unimpressed with this effort. That doesn't mean that there aren't things we should fix in the conservative movement, in the Republican Party. I want the focus to be on the you know, problems of big government that, uh, that President Biden is bringing back. And I think that's what we should be looking at. There's an opportunity to take back, back the House, maybe even take back the Senate, uh, hopefully take back the White House in 2024. But I, I don't think this effort is going to get us closer to it or really bring about clarity about what we need to do going forward. Can I keep you one more segment and ask you of about course. the larger wholesale issue this 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 comes to us as, which is, um, and I think we have to attach Liz Cheney's name to this issue, which is using saints of our past to batter the Republicans of the present. Um, I'll explain more, but I think you know what I'm talking about when we come right back. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Tevi Troy, and we will be right back. If you're thinking about going solar, saying goodbye to those utility rate increases, you want to call my friend Solar Sandy. She is a friend, and she's great. She brought integrity back to solar in Arizona and actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. Going solar in Arizona is a good idea if it works for you, but it's important you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy is the right way. She has figured out how to do this so well. That if you sign up now, she will pay your power bills for one year and your solar panel payments for one year. And you will receive a $1,000 bonus at signing. She'll meet you in person or via Zoom. I ask you to read the testimonials of her previous customers and clients at AskSolarSandy.com. They're amazing. To get started, go to AskSolarSandy.com. Let her do all the work for you. She will. Give her a call at 623-850-8229. Or visit her online at AskSolarSandy.com. Tevi Troy, a uh, historian, author, is our guest, has been our guest this hour. And Tevi, the point I was making right before the break is something we've talked about before, which is the use of past or powerless or retired Republicans to batter current ones. As uh, as is deployed by the media and the Democrats, um, as if there is no Lexus Nexus Westlaw or internet search where we can find what they who praise these out of power Republicans said about them when they were in power, and we're getting a, f- a sniff of this with all the encomiums from the likes of Nancy Pelosi about the greatness and dedication of the Cheney family to politics. I don't care what you think about the Cheneys. It's just not what Nancy Pelosi said in in the 2000s or in the 90s. And it's certainly, we've seen it again and again with your old boss, with the Reagans, with Goldwater, with McCain. It's just something we have to be wary of. Look, there's a couple of rules I have about liberals. Number one is liberals only like a Republican who's dead or retired. Yep. You're never going to hear them say nice things about a Republican active in political life or in power. Um, and the second thing is, if you want to get, if you're a conservative, you want to get a piece in the New York Times editorial page, if you want to get an op-ed in the New York Times, even though they don't call them op-eds, you have to write something bashing conservative. 
That's what they like. That's what they live for. And they and they keep these stories alive. That is their, their favorite thing to write about. So, you know, I don't really hear Nancy Pelosi either praising my old boss, George W. Bush, or, or any other um, conservative uh, from the previous era when she had nothing nice to say about them when, it was, when, when they were in power. People forget how nasty it was because I think the left and the media rely or the culture relies on a short-term memory. But people forget how nasty it was. Not exactly a present-day stalwart of the conservative movement in certain respects, maybe in a lot of respects. But when he was president, I was shocked, jaw-droppingly shocked by the Hitler and fascist imagery that was used against your boss. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there was even a term, Bush Hitler, right? Yes. ITLER, which is so offensive to me, and the guy could not have been a better friend to the Jewish people, to the state of Israel. Um, it could have been the furthest thing from uh, uh, from uh, fascist or Nazi, but that's what they like to call him uh, back then. And, and I, you know, maybe some people forget today, but I don't forget, and uh, I really don't want to hear suddenly liberals are praising George W. Bush for really evidence that it doesn't really work in the long haul, though. That in a way, it's odd fool's gold is, I don't know if you recall, about, eh, maybe about a year ago, um, I believe it was a football or baseball game that George W. Bush sat next to Ellen DeGeneres, vice versa. She went up to his box and sat next to him. I remember. And Mark Ruffalo and her Hollywood Coteria friends just blasted her, saying, you know, would it be okay to share a smile and a handshake with Adolf Eichmann. Uh, they, they literally wrote that stuff. Right. And and just to be clear, it would not be okay to share a handshake with Adolf Eichmann, but George W. Bush is not Adolf Eichmann, and it's offensive to even compare them. So um, I hate even have to waste breath to make the point, which should be so obvious. But yes, liberals love the, to... Yeah, but there is that point that it never really works, this idea that conservatives can cozy up. And 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 get and, and and in any way get much relief other than in the obituary. They're not going to. Sometimes get it. they're not even cozying up, right? I mean, you're a little say, "Oh, Ronald Reagan, uh, that was a president I could live with." Or George yeah. H. W. Bush. Uh. You know, I remember what they used to say about George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush. It wasn't pretty then either. Nope. So uh, it, you spare me. That's all I have to say about that. And in a minute and a half or so, uh, the larger wholesale question behind these 100. Uh, Republicans, if they are Republicans, renegades, whatever you want to call them, a minute or two, uh, not more, if I can ask you just to keep it within a minute, Tevi, the conservative movement and the Republican Party, this is fairly normal. Every After every loss, you see this. This is, this is nothing that the New York Times should be getting uh, that cheerful about, is it? Well, I mean, the New York Times can be cheerful about it because it suits their interest to have a story about conservative fighting. But it is absolutely true that there is a period of searching in the wilderness after you lose a presidential election. Every time. I, mean, I have a theory. I call it losing an election game think tank. After uh, Republicans or Democrats lose elections, they tend to build think tanks to try and figure out what works best. I mean, your, your mentor, yeah. um, Bill Bennett, yeah. was involved in one of these efforts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Empower America yeah. came about as a result of George H.W. Bush's 1992 right. election law. Yeah. 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 And a recurring phenomenon, we're seeing it now, is the bunch of new uh, Republican or conservative-oriented think tanks. And it's because when you lose, you, you take time, you take stock, and you try and figure out 
what went wrong and how can we do it right in the future. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think that's, that's the sign of health. There's a recognition that there are some problems and you got to work through them. Agreed. Tevi, if there are problems, often you're the solution. Thank you for everything. I appreciate your time, your brain, and your friendship. Thanks so much, Seth. Always great to be on your show. Thank you. Dr. Tevi Troy, author most recently of Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. We'll be right back. A lot of moral equivalence, as we were saying, uh, as to uh, as to uh, the right and wrong side um, in the Middle East right now. Paul Johnson, the historian, wrote that the first and most important misapprehension when it comes to the Israel and Palestinian issue is the failure to grasp the tiny size of the area we're talking about. He says this is an old error. Er- Writing in 1869, Mark Twain admitted that actually to visit the place transformed his ideas. Quote, the word Palestine always brought to my mind a vague suggestion of a country as large as the United States. I suppose it was because I could not conceive of a small country having so large a history. Close quote. The Arab world is over 500 times the size of Israel. 500 times. But the gross exaggeration of Israel's physical size, encouraged by Arab propagandists who have never once in a in more than half a century published an accurate map of the area, is only just one of the untruths which abound around the conflict. The first concerns the physiologically vital question of nomenclature. To contrast Jewish Israel with Arab Palestine makes no historical sense at all. The Arabs are in no sense the residual legatees of the Philistines from whom the word Palestine derives. It is, in the first place, that Philistine dominion never existed much beyond the coastal strip from Gaza to present-day Tel Aviv. As a people, the Philistines were wiped out or or absorbed by the Babylonian conquerors. It was the Romans who invented the term Palestina after 135 Common Era to replace the name Judea, the historic name of the country, and with the intention of obliterating its Jewish identity. The term Palestine was adopted by Christian cartographers, but was never used by the territory's own inhabitants until quite modern times. So if you want peace in the Middle East, here's my idea. Give Israel back to the Italians. I'm Seth Liebson. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. We'll be right right back. We won't. God bless you all. (laughs) Class dismissed.